0: I was a mischievous child growing up. That will surprise some of you. I got in trouble a lot. My mama would tell you that almost everything I ever did wrong, I got caught. And one of those memories that, you know, there are certain things that we do and we won't always learn from them. One of those memories is that anytime time there were little Debbie snack cakes in the house, Paula knows what I'm talking about because we've talked about our love for Little Debbie Snapcakes. But any time there was those, there was a simple rule in our house. You can eat them. Don't take them to the back of the house. Don't take them to your room. So imagine my mother's shock and awe every time we had those when she would go into my room and find wrapper after wrapper after wrapper from Little Debbie Snack Cakes. I see many mothers nudging. I see many nods going, I know that. Yeah, I got that one. And my mom or my dad would go, hey, do you want to tell me something, as they held a wrapper in their hand? And I wish I could tell you that my immediate reaction was, yeah, I did wrong, I'm sorry. Well, my immediate reaction nine times out of ten went something like this. Adam, being my older brother, said it was okay. He said, as long as I threw it away before you found it, everything would be all right. And then my mama or daddy would say, well, did Adam do it? And I'd go, well, no, I did. But Adam said. And then sometimes I would even try to go so far as to go, I don't know how that got there. Adam must have have ate them and then put the wrappers in my room to frame me. All of this sounded really good in my head. Thinking of it now, it doesn't sound so believable. And nine times out of ten when those wrappers were found, they weren't found just sitting on the dresser. No, they were found like shoved underneath a bed somewhere or in a drawer because I was trying to hide what I had done wrong. Let's not even talk about the fact all I had to do is take them and throw them away in the trash can and my mama probably would have never known. But as I I think about those instances, I start thinking about Genesis chapter three. And now, as I've said before, we kind of need to set the context to understand this idea. Um, But so the reason I would never own up to mistakes like that was a simple word. Shame. I was ashamed. I was ashamed that I had done something wrong. I was ashamed that I had gotten caught. And in Jesus' time in the first century, they lived in this culture that they defined as a shame and honor culture. And in the shame and honor culture, your worth was based on a handful of things that were beyond your control. Your last name, the color of your skin, your gender, where you were born, who you were born to. Were you born legitimately or illegitimately? Were you born with a disability or not? All these things that are beyond your control defined your honor in that culture, how people viewed you. And then... Whatever that honor was, you could not go to the next level, if you will. If I was born in a society and I had low honor because of where I was born or who I was born to, no matter what I did, I was going to stay in that spot in society. And so what we find is that in Jesus' day, the culture would define your self-worth. And now granted, there were actions you could do to boost your honor, to present to be better, but even those actions of what was right and wrong and good and not so good were defined by the culture. And so, imagine the shock of the people if they were to really dive into their scripture Where it says things like, care for the poor and orphaned. Extend grace to those that have done you wrong. You see, those types of actions are the very types of actions that would bring shame on a person. Because they were viewed as something you just don't do because society would tell you, you don't do it. It's kind of like when my mom would say, you don't do that. And why didn't we do it? Because I was told we don't do it. But in Genesis chapter 3, we literally see the first instance of shame, if you will. I'm sure that all of you know the story, but just as an update on what's going on in the text, Jesus has created Adam and Eve. Jesus has said, go, tend to the garden, name the animals, do all this stuff, eat, drink, be merry, but don't eat from that one tree. Which, I just a little side note, so often in our world we look, at what G- uh, we look at Christianity as a list of don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that, you can't do this, you can't do that. I just want to point out that God's first command is everything that you get to do. Everything we get to do. And sometimes I think that it would be helpful for Christianity as a whole if we, instead of telling people what they don't get to do, we kind of entered into, yes, but look at everything that you get and how beautiful it is. Look at the beauty of the kingdom of God. Instead of pointing out that you don't do this, you don't do that. That's a side note. That's a whole other sermon for a whole other day. But so Genesis 3, we hear that there's this tree that they're not supposed to eat tree of the knowledge of good and evil and then there's this other character that shows up the serpent shows up he nestles up to Eve and he says God didn't really say that come on it's alright you, you, can, you can eat you can eat for that why would he say you can eat from every other one and not from that one come on and so what does Eve do she eats and then what does Eve do she presents it to Adam And Adam says, all right, and he eats it too. Now, I'm not going to get into the debate of how some folks would go, oh, well, it's all a woman's fault, because here's the thing. Eve was tricked. Adam knew exactly what he was doing. I'm just going to throw that out there. But anyway, that's neither here nor there either. But what happens in Genesis chapter 3, after all of this, we see in verse 7 that the eyes of both of them were opened. And they realized that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of day. And what did they do? They hid from the Lord. But the Lord called out to them, where are you? And Adam answered, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And, he, and God responds, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man, I lo- this, is, this just reminds me of me and my brother, of, me, of my nephews growing up. The man's response is, oh, uh, uh, it's her fault. I, I, I did but it's the woman that you put there with me. She's the one that did it. It's her fault. And then, because she feels attacked, what does she do? Oh, no, 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 it ain't my fault. It's the serpent's fault. And and so, I want to just pause for a minute, and I want to ask you this question. Because in verse 7, there's that phrase that it says, their eyes were opened to the sin that they had committed. What do you do? What is your reaction when your eyes are open to your sin? When you start to realize, yeah, I probably am not doing that right. This is probably not what God intended for me. What's your reaction? Is your reaction to kind of hide it? Act like it didn't happen? Maybe do like I did growing up and when you come and pray for confession, you kind of go, God, you you know what I did because you don't want to own up to it? Is it that you become defensive and you you start to blame it on someone else? Well, I wouldn't have done it if they didn't. I wouldn't have done it if my friends didn't encourage me. I wouldn't have done it if the circumstances didn't dictate it. I wouldn't have done it if culture hadn't said so. Or maybe... We start to just try to shine the light on other folks. Oh, but look at what they did. Look at what they did. Don't look at me. Don't acknowledge my sin. Acknowledge theirs first. Or maybe we find ourselves in what we see here is kind of a shame spiral where we do all of it at one time. Did you notice? Like the first thing, God created them with a purpose. They're walking around, everything's good. The second their eyes are open, they're like, oh, we've got to cover up our, everything that we did wrong, and now we've got to go hide and all of this stuff. And they find themselves in this shame spiral, if you will. And God comes into the garden looking for them. And I love the fact that, can we just be honest for a minute? God knows where they're at. God already knows what has happened. But what does God do? God says, hey, where are you? What's going on? God calls them and says, come to me and let's talk about it. And so they do. They come out and God says, well, what's going on? Why were you hiding from me? And they were like, because I was ashamed naked. And I love that that God then goes, who told you that? Because see, this is what I've started to understand about shame. And I kind of adopted this from an author, Brene Brown, who talks about the difference in guilt and shame. And I think we need to hear this because some of us, all of us are guilty of doing something wrong. But she says that the difference in guilt and shame is guilt is that feeling that you have when you do something wrong. Shouldn't have done that. Shame, on the other hand, makes you believe that that is who you are. It's not, hey, God, we're hiding because we ate the fruit that you told us not to. It's we're bad people. I'm a terrible sinner. Now I know that, we grow, that we've all grown up in a world that says this mentality, that to sin is human nature. And I would call into question that if you go look at Genesis 1. The very nature of human is created in the image of the divine. And so when we do that, what we have done is built into a culture of shame that says, "I am a sinner." And we've lost sight of the good news that God proclaims in this text That I've got something better for you if you would just quit hiding, if you would just quit deflecting, if you would quit living in this world of shame. Because if you look at the text, there's then an interaction with God and the serpent and Adam and Eve. And God first punishes the serpent, And then God deals with Eve, and then God deals with Adam, which is to tell us this. Our sins have consequences. Our sins have consequences. I want you to hear that, because I think sometimes we just look at it and go, Ah, God's grace is this wonderful elixir that I don't have to deal with the consequences of my sin." Well, to some extent, you don't have to deal with death because God says, yes, you are being restored, but there are actions that you have done that there are going to be consequences that you're going to have to face. I'm sorry to tell you. It's how it works. Even when I would get caught doing something wrong, if I would go, Mama, I'm sorry, she would go, that's fine, but you're still grounded. There's consequences. There's consequences. And so, But I want to point out the interaction that he has with Eve because as he's talking with Eve, there's this beautiful thing that happens. He starts talking about how childbirth will be painful and all of this stuff, but he also points out that when he's punishing the serpent, he says, her descendants will crush yours. Their heel will crush your head. And the beauty of it is this, and I want you to notice it, that even amidst God dealing with our sin, our shame, and our hurt, God is doing the redemptive work of pointing us to Jesus Christ. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 is the first prophecy of Jesus Christ. When it says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He, he being Jesus, will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now go look in the Gospels where Jesus literally quotes these and says these very words. Even in God's dealing with our sin, God is pointing to the redemptive grace of Jesus Christ. God is saying, I've got something so much better in store for you. I know you've messed up. I know you've sinned and fallen short, but guess what? Those mistakes that you have made do not have to be who you become. Or as I've heard it said, Every saint has a past, every sinner a future. And I think some of us need to hear that today. That you do not have to be defined by your past. Because God is seeking to restore you, to make you whole. God is seeking restoration and redemption and salvation instead of fear and brokenness. And shame. But so many of us are living in this world of shame. I'm a terrible person because I've done bad things. I'm a sinner. I've shared this story before, maybe not in this pulpit, but I can remember when I first got into youth ministry and there was somebody that I had not talked to in probably 10 years that I got a random Facebook message And the message said, so I see that you're a preacher now. And I said, I am. And the response was, I would never go to your church. I thought about it for a minute, got a little angry. But then my response was, I'm so sorry to hear this. Why? And the response that they sent back was, well, because I knew you in high school, and I know what kind of person you are. You in high school, and I knew what and I know what kind of person you are. Now, I'll be the first to admit it. Did I always get it right? Was I always necessarily the best person? No. But my response to that is this: I'm not the same person in high school that I was in high school, and I thank God every day for that. And I hope and pray that each and every one of you, unless you're still in high school, have grown since you were in high school. And if you're in high school, I hope you've grown since yesterday, in all honesty. But we find ourselves living in this world of shame where we define people by their past. So you may be saying, you know, preacher, I hear what you're saying. I don't really wrestle with shame in my life. And if you don't, I applaud you. If you're somebody that says, you know what, I'm redeemed by God's grace, and I know that, I am no longer labeled as a sinner, and you can really firmly grasp that and live into that day by day and never feel shame. I applaud you. But the flip side of this coin is how frequently do we put shame on other people? Do we define other people by their sins? Even things that they did 10, 15, 20 years ago will go, oh yeah, but you remember that story? I can't believe they'd show their face here. You know what they did. And I'm not saying it happens here, but I am going to say this. What I've come to realize is it happens way more frequently in small towns where everybody grew up together and everybody knows everybody's history. And we label them by it. And we define them by it. And then we go, hey, come to church with me. After we've shamed them into hiding. Come on. What would it look like if we lived into Genesis 3 and we said, Hey, I'm going to meet you where you are. I'm going to let you know God has something greater in store for your life. Don't be defined by your past. Let's move forward into the future. There's a lot of people walking around in our world that believe because culture, the world, and sometimes even we tell them, You're naked, and you should be ashamed of that. You're broken, and you should be ashamed of that. And they never hear of the redemptive grace of Jesus Christ. The challenge that I want to issue you today is to mute the shame culture. There's enough going on in our world that we can feel ashamed about and all of that, but can we just for a minute take a step back? and go, yeah, I've done wrong. I feel guilty, but I don't have to feel ashamed because God's redemptive grace is doing something new within me now. And as we go forth to extend that same grace to others, it says, I understand that you've got a past, but so do I. Let's walk this journey together as we extend grace to others. The beauty of this story is even amidst shame, Even amidst hurt, even amidst sin, God's at work doing something new. God's at work creating something better. God's work is not a work of sin and shame and fear. It is a work of restoration, redemption, and salvation. I don't know about y'all, but that seems like a lot more fun work to do than going around shaming people. So my challenge is that we mute the shame, but that we proclaim God's grace, redemption, restoration to our broken world and in our own broken lives. Amen.